welcome to this week's edition of the Old Sport Podcast. What a start to the sporting year we've just witnessed. We've had Ashes drama, the Djokovic debacle, golfing records tumble, shocking upsets across the sporting codes, and so much more. I'm Hamish Stewart, and helping me digest this sporting feast, as always, are Ben Rosen and Hugo Carson. Boys, how are you, and have you had a chance to catch your breath after a whirlwind week? I'm well, thanks, mate. Very well. It was a whirlwind week. Well put. Lovely intro. Um, have sort of had a chance to to catch a breath, but I'm Imagine. looking forward to sinking our teeth into this one. What about you, Hugo? Yeah, I mean, you don't even know where to begin, honestly. There's so many, so many uh, incidents and outcomes to analyze that it's going to be a great episode, and can't wait to to really dig in. I'll tell you exactly where we're going to begin. We'll begin with the Ashes fourth test in Sydney, which was a fantastic one. An injury-plagued English team managed to hang on for a draw in what was undoubtedly for mine the match of summer thus far, capped off by a drama-packed final day. The contest really had everything that we love about test cricket in it. It had fantastic narratives, comeback stories, resilience and some tactical decisions that beget scrutiny and debate <laughs> from all quasi-informed onlookers. And on that note, we'll have plenty more to say about the test in just a moment. In other international cricketing news, New Zealand have bounced back with the vengeance against the touring Bangladesh team, who actually sent the home side into bat on what looked to me and obviously to them to be a real green seamer in Christchurch. But two days and 521 <laughs> runs later, that proved to be a fairly poor decision uh, as Tom Latham put the tourists to the sword with a sparkling 252 at the top of the order. The home side ended up winning that test comfortably by an innings and 117 runs. And Ben, and finally, just while we're there, yes, um, I saw on Twitter today, I was, can't say I was watching the, the end of the game, but the last wicket was taken by Ross Taylor in his, in his final was, test. Yeah. This big juicy, wicket ball? <laughs> juicy half boy off spinning and... Um, the Bangladeshi batsman just slogged it straight up gift. in the air. It's absolute scenes there in Christchurch. What else have we got? Oh, domestic T20, who could forget? So the Perth Scorchers currently sit atop the Big Bash table after a five-wicket victory over the Sydney Sixers. Meanwhile, the Thunder are just one game back following an imperious nine-wicket victory over the Hurricanes. So they're rounding into form just at the right time. The Sixers, Hurricanes and Heat round out the top five in that competition. Fantastic. All right. So in the soccer world, it feels like a lifetime since Liverpool and Chelsea drew two all in the English Premier League. And there's been a week off since that. And that's to accommodate the third round of the FA Cup, which is the round in which the, the Premier Leagues jump in and join the teams in the lower leagues. And there were two huge cup sets, as they're known. Cambridge United beat the world's richest team, Newcastle United, 1-0 away. And Nottingham Forest beat Arsenal 1-0 at home. And that was the, the magic of the cup appeared to grip the UK for the first time in many years. This round's particularly special because they have that week off, so everyone's eyes are, are on the FA Cup. In the EFL Cup, which is the English Football League Cup, uh, which only involves the teams in the Premier League and the Championship, Chelsea cruised past Tottenham 2-0 in the first leg of their semi-final. Liverpool and Arsenal were supposed to play last week. That's actually been postponed to later this week. In the Women's Super League, top of the table, Arsenal lost their first game of the season to Birmingham City. Um, Birmingham City winning 2-0 at home, and it was their first win at home in nearly three years, their first win of the season, and probably the biggest upset from the football world. Closer to home and in the A-League, Melbourne Victory main top of a really distorted A-League table. They've played 
three games more than Perth and Brisbane due to COVID-related postponements. Um, however, their 1-1 draw with Adelaide United was marred by a homophobic chance made towards United's player Josh Cavallo. Um, Cavallo had the courage to call it out on social media, and it was only when he did this that Melbourne Victory responded with a statement. The return of ultras to soccer leagues around the world since fans returned to stadiums has been pretty damning. And this is just another example of that with certain A-League supporter groups are now linked to anti-vax movements across Victoria, um, especially and parts of New South Wales as well. In the Women's League, Sydney FC are atop of the competition with Wellington just one point from their opening six games in last. And finally, in all the other European leagues, they returned to action over the last weekend, the highlight was Juventus winning a thrilling game 4-3 over Roma, which has placed a lot of pressure on Jose Mourinho with Roma now floundering mid-table. Awesome. Uh, let's move on to some American sports, shall we? Starting with the, the NFL. It's a huge week in the NFL um, last weekend with the final week of the regular season just completed, uh, including some huge deciders for those last few playoff positions. Uh, we had some last-minute field goals and overtime field goals, uh, sending the Raiders, 49ers, and Steelers all through field goals into the playoffs. Uh, at the end of the regular season, the playoff seeds sit as such. In the AFC, uh, Tennessee Titans were conference champions with Kansas City, Buffalo Bills, Cincinnati Bengals, Las Vegas Raiders, New England Patriots, and Pittsburgh Steelers rounding out the AFC. In the NFC, Green Bay Packers topped that conference with the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Dallas Cowboys, Los Angeles Rams, Arizona Cardinals, San Francisco 49ers, and Philadelphia Eagles also making the playoffs. We'll have the, the full playoff preview and fixtures for you later in the show, but let's move on to the NBA. We, we saw a, a few exciting comebacks, not least from uh, Golden State Warriors splash brother Clay Thompson back on the court after two and a half year absence from the game due to several injuries. Another big star returned to the NBA over the past week, however, under slightly different circumstances. That being unvaccinated Brooklyn star Kyrie Irving uh, being allowed to play in away games. He has not played a game, had not played a game up till this stage due to his uh, lack of vaccination and is now allowed to play uh, away games due to the league's struggling COVID, uh, due to the league's struggling numbers due to COVID cases. Uh, in New York, Kyrie Irving still can't play. However, uh, he is allowed to play away games in states that allow unvaccinated players to play. That's your US sports review. Ben, how about uh, a bit closer in the AFLW? Yeah, and AFLW round one is in the books. Uh, the Crows, Dockers, Tigers, Ds, Pies and Giants make up the order of the all-important top six there in a round which was sort of undermined by a few injuries to some key players, which is never what you want to see. This week also saw the commencement of the highly anticipated Australian summer of tennis. So just running through those results, Team Canada won their first ATP Cup title after defeating Spain in the final. Aussie duo Ash Barty and Storm Sanders claimed the women's doubles title at the Adelaide International. It was a dream start to the summer for Aussie Ash, who picked up the singles title in straight sets just hours earlier. Simona Halep took out the first women's singles title at the Melbourne Somerset, while Rafael Nadal took out the men's singles crown, defeating Cressy 7-6, 6-3. Finally, Gail Monfils defeated Karen Kachanov 
6-4-6-4 in the Adelaide International Men's Finals, Men's Singles Finals. The win brought about Monfi's 11th championship title and it was good to see the always entertaining Monfi's round into some nice form leading into the Australian Open. I'm surprised he's only won 11 titles. Um, he's been yeah, a I mean, pretty good player for a long time. No, not easy to win, but I don't know. You look at Ash has just added another two to her already pretty uh, glowing trophy cabinet. Um, anyway, he is mercurial, I suppose. Yeah, I guess another one I should add to that just saw as we came on to air that um, Bernard Tomic has lost yes. his Aussie Open qualifier first round, so he will not be featuring at Melbourne Park this summer one month after he posted a bizarre hype video. I don't know if either yeah. of you two saw this, yeah. but it was, I think it was I through his sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, the I'm back video. Um, I don't know how far back he's come, but he, um, yeah, he won't he, be a headliner. He, during the game as well, got caught on the, um, it's not the stump mic, it's probably the net mic, uh, <laughs> saying that talking to, I don't know if it was his coach or a ball kid or what it was, uh, but saying that everyone at the Australian Open is going to get COVID because they're making everyone do rapid tests every day, which right. is interesting logic. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll sorely miss Bernie at this year's <laughs> Australian Open. Sure. Hugo, would you like to move us into our first main story of the week? The Ashes' fourth test in Sydney. Okay, yeah, let's get into it. Um, so we'll start with the Aussies who who batted first. and. Um, a few starts in the top order as the pitch looked a lot easier to bat on than uh, some predicted, including England, who Joe Root said just after the toss that he might have bowled first, which was an interesting decision. Um, so we had a few starts in the top order. Steve Smith and Usman Khawaja put on a great a great partnership. And um, that latter name, Usman Khawaja, really is a, the big story of the test, I think, apart from test cricket itself. Uh, for bowling... We had Stuart Broad back in the team, proving why he should arguably, arguably be one of the first picked English bowlers in Australia, at least. Uh, and then England went out to bat following Australia's declaration at 416. And uh, Johnny Bairstow with a, a great, um, exciting fighting innings, um, partnered by Ben Stokes, but Johnny made 113 off 158 balls. While Scott Boland, again, was the pick of the bowlers. Boys just starting on the first innings. Really exciting start to the to the test. Yeah, uh, indeed it was. I thought the, um, I mean, the decision to bat was obviously the right one, uh, vindicated by runs to both Smith and then Kawaja, as you touched on earlier. Clearly the star of the show. Took, a little, took his time to get going, but um, once he got sort of the pace of the wicket out there, Looked fantastic. You're right, Broad bowled really well, picking up Warner again in that first dig. Um, does beg a belief why he's missed two of the four tests so far. Um, you know, he's he's not bowling the speeds that he used to bowl, but he's still, of all, all the bowlers, you know, not one that you'd want to be facing, especially if you're a left-hander, which there are a few of in the Australian <laughs> order. Um, and then I thought Bairstow's innings was fantastic. Obviously, he went down with an injury, copped some pretty heavy blows. Um, and I thought the Australians bowled pretty well. He just fought really hard, aided by a really good half century from Stokes, who was also battling a side strain. Um, I just thought all around it was a good, well-fought test match that sort of had a bit for everyone. What did you think, Hamish? Yeah, I agree. And we'll touch on Kawaja and, and Bearstow and everything else 
again in a little bit of time. Um, yeah, the ending of that Kawaja was, I don't know, Sydney tests, it's something about fairy tale every time it, it happens, whether it's Warner's 100 inside the opening session or, or Steve War off the last ball of the day. Um, to be fair, I didn't find the, the start particularly exciting given they were on and off for rain for what mm. seemed like um, an eternity and about the main another issue that we'll, uh, we'll have to touch on later. Uh, but then in the, the second innings, I really thought it was the best though show. It was just, that's one of the best um, touring hundreds I've seen coming in at four for 36 and three nil down in the series with every possible excuse to just pack it in and yeah. try and get to 30 and then nick off. But uh, Ian Stokes in. He really just flashed at a ball outside off. <laughs> um, take us through the, the third and fourth innings, Hugo. Yeah, so it was an interesting one. The Aussies uh, came out to bat with a, a slender lead or at least a lot slender than it seemed like English the, the lead would be with uh, England's poor start. Um, however, when Usman Kawaja and Cam Green came together, things kind of flipped on their head. Usman didn't look like he was going to get out the entire innings. I think he was far and away the best. I think his second innings was a lot better than his first, both very good. But um, it was great to see him just smiling from ear to ear after that second hundred. He spoke post-game about how after his first hundred, he was just kind of relieved and nice to celebrate, but then moved on. And the, the second innings, he spoke and said that, Look, just smiling ear to ear and couldn't be happy with that. And you could just see it on his face and such a good story to see. And, you know, you saw the images of his wife and a newly born child as well celebrating together. Uh, and then also Cam Green, who was arguably on the verge of getting dropped. Um, scored Only 74 as well. <laughs> you had him rested. For uh, there was, there was talk when he came in about um, not needing an extra bowler in Hobart and then Boland. Staying in the team, Cam Green is needed, but I, I think he should have played even if he uh, didn't make any runs. But it was an interesting talking point. But he ended up making 74 of 122 and looked quite good. Um, was on for 100 before he got out to Jack Leach, followed by Alex Carey, a bizarre decision not to just declare when, when Cam Green went out. Carey goes out the next ball, first ball of his innings, and then they declare then. <laughs> I guess it's probably cost them an over, didn't give. it? That, that yeah. over. Well, I mean, who knows? Anyway. With, uh, Steve Smith bowling could have been up with one. another over. <laughs> anyway, boys, um, then England came in to bat, and Zach Crawley, another good story for England there. Um, looked he really looked good, good. attacking, really good. hit the short ball really well, averages over 100 against the short ball, I'm pretty sure. So, a good. Good batsman should have potentially been in the first test and another thing to talk about there. Um, and then Haseeb Hamid, another single-digit score. Looks like their, his future might be questionable. Um, but some good fight from the middle uh, the middle order there with Ben Stokes, another 50. Johnny Bairstow, a well-fought 41. Both of those boys digging in. Um, but it really was England trying to get the draw. And then a burst of wickets. I don't even know how to how to explain what happened, but Pat Cummins bowls two of his best balls of his career, including an in-swing Yorker to break Mark Wood's foot. And then all of a sudden it looks like game's gone from an inevitable draw to an inevitable Australian win. Um, before we talk about the last few overs, boys, just a summary of Australia's second innings and uh, your thoughts on the start of England's innings. Yeah, um, it was a pretty... 
well-resurrected innings. I think when we look back on it, maybe in a few months or months or years time, we'll forget that the test match really hung in the balance when they had us four down for not terribly many. Um, they seem to be fighting well, bowling pretty well. And as you said, we didn't end up with the first innings lead that probably looked like we'd get after Bairstow's um, innings. And then Uzi um, and Green really both batted superbly. I thought that was a really keen observation. Kawaja just never looked like going out. Um, he looked so comfortable out there. It was actually a lot of fun watching him bat when he gets going. He scores so effortlessly and he's got that, that looks sort of so nice. fluid language style. Yeah, it looks a million bucks. It's the same style that gets him into a bit of trouble when he's sort of nicking off, fishing at wide Away from home. Yeah, when he, but when he's, when he's seeing him well, um, he's a, a joy to watch. And then, yeah, they, they obviously showed a fair bit of fight in that fourth innings. I thought it, it would be an inevitable Australian win when the wickets started to tumble, but obviously a bit of rain some bad light, um, all the rest of it, uh, and and some good good fight from the English batsman at the end to secure a draw. What do you think, Hamish? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Um, on that that final day, I, I had the feeling on, when was it, Adelaide, we were trying to bowl them out on the last day. Yeah. Um, I was very confident overnight. Like, I never really doubted throughout the day, even when there was that bloke's butler stand. But today... Um, sorry, not today, but on the last day of the Sydney test, even before the day's play, just didn't feel particularly confident seeing that the pitch was pretty flat openers. Obviously, you have to restart again in the morning, but the fact they got to, to none for 30 overnight was a good enough sign that uh, things were okay, especially if you could get through the, those first couple of overs. And Stark being tired, uh, it was pretty uh, easy to see throughout the whole test match. I was listening to most yeah. of it on the radio because I was I was in the car and they were talking about before the game, they're watching the warm-up and he was literally grimacing, trying to do like his medicine ball side to sides to, to warm his body up. He looked like he was in a fair bit of pain and looks like it's just soreness from playing four tests back to back. Um, obviously, Captain Cummins came in and got those, those couple of crucial wickets, but it wasn't quite enough in the end. And, you know, to be fair, although Australia outplayed England for most of the tests, I, I think a draw was probably um, a fair result for just the entire kind of story of the test match and Bairstow's 100 and Crawley's fight and um, just the Sydney test as a whole. I thought it was kind of a fitting grandstand finish to it. Well summarised. Um, just a, a few thoughts on the last few overs, boys. Um, basically, for those who who didn't catch it, uh, lighting bad lighting came into effect in Sydney, um, which meant that it would have been called off. However, Pat Cummins, the Australian captain, decided uh, or suggested that he would only bowl spin bowlers, who bowl obviously a lot slower. Um, so it was between, obviously, Nathan Lyon would bowl at one end, and then it was between Marnus, Labuschagne, and Steve Smith to bowl from the other end. And for some reason, whatever reason, he chose Steve Smith, and he managed to get a wicket in the in the third last over with 12 balls left. So James Anderson comes out to bat, and you've got Nathan Lyon and then Steve Smith, the ball last over with the field around surrounding the bat and every ball, everyone in the crowds up and about clapping him in. And then I, this is just as good as test creek gets. I, I think batsman, you've got a batsman who never practices batting or rarely practices batting, trying to survive a bowler 
who rarely practices bowling ever in Steve Smith. With it all to play for. (laughs) With it all to play for. I mean, there is no dead rubber in the ashes. And that's, it's just, test cricket has proven why it will always be the best format and proven always every summer, it seems like. Um, It's just unbelievable. No two games are the same. And this is one of the best ever. Yeah, it was an absolute cracker. The end was so drama-packed as well, having, <laughs> having the spinners on. I, mean, I think you do have to um, – you you've probably got to throw Smith the ball. He was picked as a standalone leg spinner <laughs> like really? years ago. Um, Didn't know that. But, yeah, he started his <laughs> – uh, yeah, who knew? Um, so I, I think it was probably the right decision. He's obviously not the spin bowler that he once was. But, you know, he took the wicket, so – that was proven to be a good call, but the big captaincy decision happened about a day earlier than that. Yeah. And, and it was the, the declaration call or, or lack thereof. Um, and I think that, you know, once, once we passed the three fifty lead, it's easy to say in hindsight now, but I think probably put too much emphasis on seeing green over 50 and Kawadra over a hundred. And potentially if I'm being ultra critical of Cummins um, cost, you know, maybe put put those milestones above a couple of overs at the end of of the next day, which could have proven all the difference. I mean, we'll never know. It's all just spitballing, but I don't know. We'll see. Another another small point. I totally agree. By the way, Ben, an interesting decision from Pat Cummins there. Another small point that it seems like not a lot of people want to talk about. It's a bit of an ugly conversation because everyone does love him so much. But Alex Carey's keeping is again. Uh, come under question, Hamish. You're you're a full time wicketkeeper nowadays. <laughs> any any thoughts there? Yeah, look, his right leg's just not quite strong enough. So he's moving for that right hand side. No, I'm not even going to bother. Yeah, he that run out off uh, Bearstow. That was the key moment for me. They get that run out there. They win the test. Um, and yeah, he just you should just, you, it's always tempting when the ball's bouncing right at the base of the stumps or where you think it's going to hit the base of the stumps to come up early and let it go through. Uh, but he wasn't even watching the ball like when it passed him. Um, and uh, I don't know, you can't be, you can't be too critical. He hasn't covered himself in glory the entire series. He took eight catches in Brisbane, but it's fair to say most of them were pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and I think he's got to play in Hobart and you've got to give oh, him no a chance because he's waited so long Um but yeah, hasn't covered himself in glory. It's okay to carry a couple of people through these kinds of series, though, uh, when we don't George have either team exactly at the top of their the peak of their powers. On the um kind of advertisement for for Test cricket, like I don't know, Test cricket feels the need to kind of always say that it's alive and and doing well. I, I can't really think of another sport that always you hear saying export is alive and well, and we don't need to worry about people losing interest Wonderful. in it or blah, blah, blah. Baseball. Sorry? Baseball, Baseball potentially, but I suppose it's test cricket as like a, as a format. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, test crickets, I agree with you, Hugo, always going to be number one. The, the threat facing it is not a lack of public interest. It's the fact that three nations pull all the money and are playing against each other. And yeah. it's a discussion for another time, but test cricket's going to be healthy when South Africa come out here next summer and it's a, a proper contest because they've got the ability to pay Quinton de Kock the money he needs to, to have a central contract. And these like the, the bigger issues I think facing test cricket, but yeah, I love the draw. I love the idea of the draw. I think 
it's one of those few things like it's a very conservative sport and people often hark back to the old days, but the introduction of, of five-day tests and the fact you introduce the whole nother result to test cricket, um, uh, that's that's just an awesome thing, I think. Um, and then I suppose the next topic for for you guys is Kawadra and Bearstow. Their, their stories are actually relatively similar, both I would say mistreated or mishandled by their respective cricketing boards in terms of selection and mucking around where they bat in the order and their role, um, both coming back from significant periods outside of the team or in and out. Berso's thumb's obviously injured and he's in doubt for the final test. We're not sure how he'll go, even though I heard some comments saying he batted better with the sore thumb because, I mean, his bat was coming down straighter and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then Uzi, obviously, uh, I mean... I'll just give my two cents on on the the selection of the the Hobart test, but I think not picking a guy who's made two hundreds in a test match would absolutely <laughs> undermine any credibility in how we select our test cricket teams. And I think for George Bailey's own sake, uh, he has to simply select Kawaja. Pat Cummins said just about as much after the game. Where do you boys think he should slot in? Does Head get back? Is he unlucky, or does Harris miss out simply because there's a better batsman than him? I think Head has to come back. And they more or less tacitly told Head that he would come back. Because, I mean, he he's out of the side through absolutely no fault of his own and batted very well at the Gabba. So I think he comes back in the team. I completely agree with you about Kawaja. Um, and then, yeah, maybe it's a, a tough time to be Marcus Harris. He's He hasn't done a lot wrong, but I think not doing much wrong isn't enough in this case when both the other two batsmen in the in the conversation have scored centuries and you haven't. What do you reckon, Hugo? Yeah, um, I think he has to take Marcus Harris's spot. Everyone keeps talking about the Melbourne innings, and I loved it. We watched it, Hamish, you and I together. It was it was great to watch, but also played and missed about you know a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the um, And I mean, obviously, yeah, that's an art in itself, but um, <laughs> it just. I, you can't possibly people wanted Kawaja in to open before the series and Harris has not firmed his stock in my eyes at all. I, I like him as a player and I think there is potential there maybe when Warner retires or something. I mean, Harris isn't that young himself, but um, yeah, Kawaja has to come in ahead, probably deserves his spot 100, 100 more than Harris though. Uzan Kawaja's already outscored Marcus Harris this season, this series. So there you go. Yeah, I I agree completely with both of what you've said. Um, I wouldn't actually be too disappointed if if Head missed out simply because it's the the last test. But I agree, he deserves his spot more than Harris does. Um, I think Usman Kawaja is the best batsman in Australia at the moment. Like, if you had to bet right now on your house on who you think is going to make a hundred in Hobart, we support like, gambling. Obviously not. Um, you've been put, you've been put in this situation where you have to put your <laughs> house up and they're going to take it if you get it wrong. Um, <laughs> like I'm putting Kawaja more likely to get a century than Smith and Warner and Lavashane's the only one that you would <laughs> you would think about. So it's, um, it's kind of incredible to think about. No, um, no, no. Really, no. Ben? Smith, Smith is good. Obviously, one of the best in the world still. Well, you you can't made... take a one-match sample size, though. Like on the oh, but it's four. It it was a fantastic, <laughs> but yeah, sheer form's one thing. And it was a really good deck. 
and it and it only got better. I mean, as you said, he looked better in the second innings, but so did the pitch. I'm not not to diminish the achievement. He's batting incredibly, <laughs> but Labuschagne is the best Test batsman in the world, and he's at that moniker. Um, Mark would only him off. Yeah, he's broken foot. But he's walking across the stuff now. Um, no, I don't know. I, I like the vote of confidence in Kawaja, and I hope he's listening. And I hope he stops listening when I start talking. But um, no, I, he's he's doesn't look the batsman Labashane does, I don't think. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. The one thing I'd say also on Harris is that the only argument possibly you can make for selecting Harris over Kawaja um, is that, oh, it's an investment in the future. Harris isn't the long-term goal. Pukowski is their long-term one. Yeah. Like, like, and then maybe it's Wrench or maybe it's someone else. You can work around that. I think it's okay to have two old guys opening when you've got Pukowski coming back to cricket and you've got other guys as well seeing that there's, also, a, there's a chance now. Test cricket isn't the place to grow the future. That's always been Sheffield Shields' role is to, you know, have your young players there. And once they're good enough, they make the Australian test side, which is the best batsman, not necessarily, oh, he's got good potential, we'll start him young. You to want be, your best possible team playing. To be fair to Harris, he's been the dominant, like, shield. I, I, I um, agree. And and as Ben said, he hasn't done anything wrong or anything like that. Um, but I just think if you're not in the top six bats, I think he's probably a better bat than Cameron Green, but Green can bowl really important overs, so I think he misses out. The only thing I would like to talk about, um, very brief one, is whether we should be playing the Sydney Test yeah. earlier in the summer, in December, um, or are we too wedded to the idea of a, of a New Year's Test in Sydney simply because of the rain? I think it's, it's by far the wettest test in Australia. Um, Sydney does get less rain in late November and early December than it does in January. So where do you boys land on that one? Got my uh, weather stats up here. Uh, Sydney averages about 100 mil of rainfall in January and in December and November, it's around 75 mil. So there's a big difference there. Um, I think if you made the big spectacle of the SEG test as the first test of the summer as well, obviously, you know, that's losing the Gabba's first test, but you could you could argue that that's big enough. And then you go into Adelaide, probably Perth, Melbourne, and then Brisbane New Year's test. I think you'd still get big enough crowds at Sydney and then get probably bigger crowds at the Gabba because you have a lot of people travelling to Queensland after um, the Christmas holidays. So that's the way I see it. I think leave it. I mean, we had about as much rain as you could really hope to contend with in that test. And with a going into the final day, all three results were still more or less on the cards. And with one ball to spare, two results were, were still on the table. So I um I'm mixing metaphors there. I think that um no, nah, I think it's it's fine as it is. I like the spectrum one of thing, the New Year's test. Even though they got a result, you've got these people who come to day one, pay pay money and then and then watch a lot of rain. So even though you get the results nowadays because tests don't seem to run as long, um, I just think it's important consideration that people travel and pay a lot of money. So if it's a rained out day, it's pretty disappointing. Good points from both of you. The only thing I'd say is I wouldn't do the gavel last because it actually gets even more rain than, than Sydney does in, in <laughs> January. I would swap Adelaide and Sydney around if you were going to do it. But... Um, climate's getting drier uh, and the new is going to become a, the dominant weather pattern or so they say so uh, we're probably all right to stick to it um, we'll just have to deal with the bushfire smoke <laughs> all right on to our 
second main story for the weekend, really the story that's dominated not only the sporting world, but Australia's entire political landscape. We're going to get Ben to take us through this one. Stick with us. He's going to take a deep dive into the Djokovic debacle. Yes, indeed I am. It's sort of hard to know where to begin with this complete and utter snafu. But before I get into any of the talking points, I'll, I'll run the listeners through a, a quick, the wrong word to use, a timeline of events. Um, if you're familiar with all this, chuck me on double speed and we'll get through this one together. So April 2020, cast your mind back to the start of the pandemic, Djokovic actually spoke out opposing the idea of vaccine mandates. He said, quote, um, I wouldn't want to be forced by someone to take a vaccine in order to be able to travel. Um, then June 2020, a few listeners may remember this one, but Djokovic actually uh, hosted his own tennis competition in the Balkans as international sport sort of ground to a halt across the world. He invited leading tennis players, including Team and Zverev, to participate. Um, they were all out seen partying at the time, and the majority of the participants, including Djokovic, um, tested positive to COVID-19. Following that, with the onset of, of COVID vaccines around the world, there are a lot of questions surrounding his vaccine status. Mind you, none of these did anything to deter his form as he went into 2021 and rattled off one of his best seasons on the, on the tour, capped off by three Grand Slam victories. Fast forward to the week just gone by, 4th of January, he receives a medical exemption. Um, so he, he took to Twitter saying, today I'm heading down under with an exemption permission. Let's go 2022. Um, a statement from Tennis Australia in conjunction with the Victorian state government confirmed this exemption. It read, quote unquote, Djokovic applied for a medical exemption, which was granted following a rigorous review process involving two separate independent panels of medical experts. Um, Djokovic post prompted some furious backlash from within Australia. Obviously, we know everything that we've been through here um, regarding the, the lockdowns and, and everything we've had to do with vis-a-vis -vis COVID. Um, around 90% of, of polled individuals seem to be saying they don't want an unvaccinated Djokovic participating in a tournament where you need to be vaccinated to be a spectator. So under pressure from the public, Prime Minister Scott Morrison um, intervened and insisted Djokovic will not be afforded special treatment. He said, and I quote, if he's not vaccinated, he must provide acceptable proof that he cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons. He wrote that on Twitter. He continued, if that evidence is insufficient, then he won't be treated any different to anyone else and he'll be on the next plane home. There should be no special rules for Novak Djokovic at all, none whatsoever. We move to the 5th of January um, and Djokovic arrives at Tullamarine Airport um, and despite believing he had clearance to enter the country, he was held for around 10 hours by the Australian Border Force. His exemption with, with, was withdrawn and his visa was cancelled. The 34-year-old was then transferred to the Park Hotel in Carlton, uh, a state-run immigration facility that is also used to house asylum seekers, where he lodged an appeal against the decision. On the 8th of January, uh, ahead of the hearing, which was held a couple of days ago, court documents released by Djokovic lawyers outlined his case. They revealed that Djokovic took a PCR COVID test on the 16th of December that returned a positive result, which formed the basis for his exemption. There's also a uh, letter dated the 1st of January from the Australian Department of Home Affairs, the agency that detained him, 
appearing to indicate that he, quote-unquote, met the requirements for a quarantine-free arrival. Djokovic had not previously revealed this positive test, uh, and pictures actually show that he attended public events on both the day of the test and the following days in Belgrade. Then on the 10th of January, so a couple of days ago, Djokovic won his appeal against the deportation. After a lengthy testimony, Judge Kelly moved to quash the original decision to revoke Djokovic visa and ordered the 34-year-old be released from detention immediately. The judge ruled that Djokovic should be should have been allowed to enter the country after being granted his medical exemption, stating to the court, quote-unquote, what more could this man have done? After his release, Djokovic posted a picture of him training at Rod Laver Arena in Melbourne that night, confirming, and I quote, despite all that has happened, I want to stay and try and compete at the Australian Open, and I remain focused on that. So right now, as we stand and, and come to you live, the saga is not quite finished. Um, there is a possibility of a three-year ban from the country still hanging over Djokovic's head, given the potential for a discretionary call from the immigration minister, Alex Hawke. As I said, this saga gives rise to a whole host of talking points, and I'm sure everyone will be excited to stop listening to my voice. So I'll toss to you, Hamish. Where do you begin? What are your thoughts? Well, first, it's a fantastic wrap you've given us there. Uh, this is an absolute mess for everyone involved. I think um, there are just no winners. Like, on any side, there is no good outcome that comes from here. Uh, either Djokovic plays and the federal government embarrasses itself, the state government embarrasses itself, Tennis Australia embarrasses itself, or, and potentially Djokovic, has to put up with a whole lot of abuse from a whole lot of angry Australian fans. Mm. Or on the flip side, the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, to cancel Djokovic's visa. And then we have diplomatic tensions with Serbia. Look, I don't know. I think obviously this could have been prevented at numerous points along the way. Obviously, in the first place, he shouldn't have been allowed to get the exemption unless he showed that he actually was uh, medically exempt from getting the vaccine it appears that they decided that he suddenly wasn't exempt from getting the vaccine and then he was because he just had it and it's all a bit of a mess on that front but then the immigration sorry the border force when he first arrived just cancelling the visa without any kind of thought or, or talk with anyone and then it's led to this court case um it all could have been avoided personally i i honestly don't know what the like objective fair outcome is oh, from 100%. this situation like no idea no way should he be playing as an unvaccinated man who's actively spoken out against vaccines in the world that has suffered way too much already and a man with such influence doesn't deserve to be given the the microphone to to kind of um give these views to to, to a, a city in melbourne which is already like struggling at the moment with all kinds of of problems around vaccine mandates and other things like he, can, he could really incite some some really difficult um emotions for, for a lot of melbournians to feel on wherever you fall on, on vaccine mandates and otherwise but then again like he hasn't actually done anything wrong per the border requirements he did attempt to get everything ticked off and he arrived here genuinely thinking he'd done all he needed um and then to and it seems i mean he he got the appeal correctly found in his favor that he actually did do everything that was required of him so 
now the fault's actually with the federal government for not having stricter things and, and the state government in terms of granting visa exemption. So I honestly don't know where I fall. I would be disappointed to see him playing at the Australian Open. I know Rafa Nadal would be as well. Um, but at the same time, I, I would feel a bit sorry for him if he was kicked out now. Hugo? I actually tend to agree with that point. When I found out he was playing, I was shocked and hugely disappointed um, that that would be allowed to happen. Um, and then for him to then get here and then be treated so poorly with just changes to everything, like it just seems either stick with your decision or find some actual reason for it to to be the wrong decision rather than just flip-flopping. Um, and then obviously, well, not obviously, but I'm not sure if you guys saw the story that broke today that in his form he had to uh, sign off that he hadn't travelled for 14 days before he arrived and now there's evidence that he had travelled to Spain and then back to Serbia in those 14 days so, I mean, it's just endless and it's just a disaster. And I think almost now I'd rather him just play, honestly, like just get it over with. I mean, for the sports, pure sports side of it, you want to see him play. Oh, without for the Without a doubt. I mean, uh, don't love him as a it's player, a either, but you have to respect him, of course. Um, but uh, given the amount of lockdowns and deaths, more importantly, that we've had here because of COVID. Um, I, I, yeah, it's it's pretty gutting to see him, see him play. But now it almost feel I almost feel bad for him, which is bizarre. Like, how has that happened? Yeah, I mean, there are so many levels to all this. I mean, on on the real micro level, it's just it's terrible look for the tournament. It. Yeah. It looks so, and even as a, as a country, this is all on the world stage. You sort of glance across national um, newspaper headlines and New York Times, CNN, BBC World News. They're all it's all front page and back page news, um, and none of it sort of looks favorably upon either the tournament, uh, the state government, the federal government. Uh, I, I just it seems unbelievable. It's not as if the the Australian Open just sort of accidentally snuck up on everyone. I mean. We've known that this was coming. Everyone's really known that Djokovic wasn't vaccinated. He try and get into the country. How there wasn't some more clarity and parity among the levels of government um, just sort of confounds me, to be honest. I think now that he's here, and as you were saying, once he's been granted the application, to then wait for him to take the flight from Dubai to Melbourne just to then revoke the visa application doesn't seem fair, irrespective of what you think of the guy. Um, and, I mean, people a bit older than us will remember when the Australian Open was a real second-tier Grand Slam, couldn't attract the best players in the world before it moved to Melbourne Park. Uh, the last thing you'd want is for sort of a series of, of mishaps like this to bring about a situation where this is no longer a premier event in world sport because it is one of my favourite events on, on the sporting calendar and sagas like this don't help. Can I just say, yeah. imagine a Djokovic-Nadal final now oh. at, at Rodlo. It would be unbelievable, the the atmosphere there. It just like 95 to 5% crowd and yeah. just like everyone's so emotional. The thing that makes me angry when it comes to Djokovic and with a lot of tennis players, maybe not Bernard Tomic, maybe not Nick Kyrgios, 
but they're really intelligent guys like and, yeah. and the girls but the girls don't seem to get themselves into strife they seem to have their their head screwed on most of the time but the guys like Roger Federer and, and Rafa and then people like Djokovic they're they're well educated guys they're um they're they're worldly as well and they obviously like know a lot about science being tennis players who are one of the most injury prone of, of all athletes and have to work so hard on their bodies with sports scientists. Like when smart people uh, argue against vaccines and, and anti-vax, that's what annoys me the most because if they actually go and do the, the research and understand things like they would any other thing, um, it, it would it just doesn't seem fair that they they pick this thing to spout to people who are more vulnerable and don't have the same access to materials or education to inform themselves. And Djokovic has, like, especially in Serbia, like, which is, you know, a country which has clear political lines and a difficult history as well. Like, he's got such a, a voice and, and so much power. And, I mean, he has power in the, the Australian community as well. We've seen people chanting and, and mm. protesting outside his hotel. Um, but at the end of the day, when you see his dad talk and, and you see kind of apple and tree stuff, um, it's not all it's not all his fault at the end of the day where he's landed, but um, it's such a difficult one. One last thing, just casting my mind forward. Um, obviously, through the Kyrie Irving situation, we know that the rules in New York City surrounding vaccine mandates. Um, I wonder how all this plays out with Djokovic when we arrive at Flushing Meadows and if those tournament organisers for the US Open are perhaps taking notes on what not to do from oh, yeah. the Australian example, because yeah. I can't see Djokovic changing his mind on vaccine status. And to further that point, if he's relied on the exemption that he's had COVID in the past six months, which all things indicate that that is what he's relying upon, um, what happens in 12 months' time when he wants to yeah. come back to Australia? Because I can't see our rules changing. Um, he can't just keep hoping he catches COVID two months before the Aussie Open each time. Um, that's not no. a sustainable game plan. It would be really no. sad if um, this is how it finished for Djokovic in Australia because he's, you know, love him or I hate him, he has been an absolute champion mm. of this tournament, the best we've ever seen and probably the best we ever will see, at least in our our lifetime. So it would be a really sad in Australia. If this was in Australia. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Sorry if I didn't um qualify that. The the best player on the hard court that we've seen. Um and it would be really sad if we we never get him to see a play again or if he didn't get to play again um and, and left in such dramatic and, and sad circumstances as well. One final point. Sorry is just the that it's brought up. I mean you, we don't want to get too political but um the immigration status of the other people who are legitimate people in the hotel that Djokovic has been at that some of them have been stuck there for nine years apparently and um, I've been seeing interviews from them from around the world uh, people who want to talk about this bizarre immigration system this awful immigration system in Australia um, so just again sport crossing the line into into politics and the power of sport that maybe something will happen hopefully to those people now that you know it's happened to Djokovic and realize like people might remember that there are people stuck there and might hopefully shine some light on that issue as well yeah I agree just before we we leave our main stories for this week it's worth mentioning uh, the really sad story that came out yesterday and that was the the passing of former Fremantle and Melbourne footballer Harley Ballack, who 
passed away yesterday aged at, at just 25. Um, so our, our thoughts here are obviously all with his family and with his friends. Uh, I don't remember him playing a lot. I remember watching him one game versus Richmond and he was a really talented footballer. And from the region he was from, he was, he was really equipped to be the next big thing. Um, but then he became one of the first players at a really young age of 21, 22, to come out and start speaking actively about mental health. He retired shortly after Tom Boyd did. And those two were really the first two in this kind of modern generation to make mental health a, a topic you can talk about in the AFL landscape. And they, they copped a fair bit of flack on the back of that. And he actually spent his last couple of years helping young people who were struggling with their own mental health in the community, not just in the AFL system, but in the community. Uh, so it's a really sad story to hear his passing. Um, and I really think it's something AFL in particular has to look at because it's still a bit of a taboo topic. There's still trolls on the internet who just get to say whatever they want. And even worse than that, people in the media saying that, you know, people need to harden up and this kind of thing when not understanding that people actually do want to get better and it's not as easy as just hardening up. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Love it. 25 is far too young. All right, moving on, changing up the tone a little bit, and we'll run through our moments of the week. And there were plenty to choose from, but mine was a, a pretty simple one, and it, and it came from the world of golf, where Aussie Cameron Smith secured his fourth PGA Tour win with a record-smashing week in Maui, Hawaii, at the Century Tournament of Champions. He finished at 34 under par with rounds of 65 64, 64, and 65 on a par 73, making it the most under par in a four-round tour event in history. He managed to hold off a ferocious challenge from the world number one golfer, John John Rahm, in the process. The Spaniard settled for a runner-up finish after Smith's eight under 65 bested his seven under 66 on Sunday. In the group ahead, countryman Aussie Matt Jones carded a course record tying 61 to keep both of them on their toes. And with the win, Smith moves into the world top 10, the only Aussie golfer in the top 10 in the world. So a lot to celebrate there. Obviously an amazing effort from Cam Smith, who is fast becoming one of my favourite golfers, a real everyman approach to the game. Um, obviously going toe to toe and, and eye to eye with, with the world number one and then holding him off down the stretch was a fantastic signal for, for a bright future and having two Aussies in the top three of a tour event, which only allows entrants who have had a a victory in the last 12 months is a a fantastic achievement. So a lot of good news stories. Can I say what is going on with our media coverage of golf this hardly got picked up it only got picked up by the major channels after he won i i understand that golf's got a select audience but like the most under par four round tour event in history like that is an unbelievable Mm. record in a big competition as well and you know if any guy is going to be um get more australians into golf it's cam smith with the yes. flowing mullet and the flaxadaisial yeah, <laughs> approach to life and anyway um i was That's, watching his highlights i saw, I saw the, the same thing in the olympics with yeah. the lack of coverage for golf there like cam smith he was in and around the the medals and then dropped off a bit but it just seems bizarre anyway that, uh, 
golf and Australian media can be a discussion point for another episode. Right up to me. <laughs> I think Ben's got a fair bit to say. Keep the chain on me for today. <laughs> Australia's Australia's best Cam Smith. Um, shout out to all our NRL fans out there. Um, <laughs> all right. Moving on to my moment of the week, it's a little bit of a, a less impressive one. Quite a story that may have slipped through, but Felipe Coutinho has returned to the English Premier League. So he's reuniting with Steven Gerrard, his former captain at Liverpool, but he's now playing under him at Aston Villa, returning from a really difficult four years at Barcelona where he went out on loan to Bayern Munich and Although he looked a million bucks there for six months, I think most people playing in his position would look a million bucks at, at Bayern Munich returned and things were just as bad as they, they were before at Barcelona. I think it's really exciting, not just for Coutinho, but for the Premier League in general. Um, he was a, he was the best player in the league when, when he left on a record transfer of 140 million pounds, uh, million euros, sorry. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited to, to see how he goes under Gerard, who he clearly has a really good rapport with. Fantastic. Big news. Um, yeah, so my moment of the week is a bit of a niche one, um, but we are a sports podcast for sports nuffies and for those who don't love sports. But basically, we a huge <laughs> week. Who's listening to this doesn't love sports. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? If you're listening to this and you're 50 <laughs> and you don't like sport, please do me a favour <laughs> and stop listening. Or send us an email and tell us why our voices sound no, so good for to those, you. For those who don't can't catch up with the the weekly sports news, yeah, want to but want a conversation starter. These are some great topics. <laughs> Might have to listen on two times speed through all the, the cricket <laughs> chat. But anyway, is it is a cricket moment, but a bit more of a niche one. Um, so I've chosen to look at more of the, the local side of sport. My local cricket team um, over the past weekend had to forfeit two of its five matches on Saturday, just like many professional teams, um, local sports teams right now um, all around the world, but looking more at, at Australia with our rising case numbers, they're, they're struggling to field teams and, and um, even to continue competitions going. Um, many leagues seemed or many competitions seem to make the rational decision to postpone the restarting cricket after the summer break. However, many other competitions attempted to push through COVID, which um, in my opinion seems truly bizarre when there's thousands of thousands of thousands of cases, everyone seems to be isolating with either with COVID or close contact. Um, it just seems like a rational decision needs to be made by these competitions for the benefit of, of the community to just postpone You've had two seasons of, of local footy postponed and it's been fine. You know, obviously everyone loves their local sport, but it just it just seems like this is a, a good chance to just have a week off, see if it gets better. If it doesn't, maybe try restarting it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a, a look at COVID affecting some more some more local community sports. Yeah, ridiculous that you can't just put in a thing and say, look, we've got six players. Can we just have a draw? And they won't accept that. That's unbelievable that they're making teams forfeit. Mm. 
Yeah, and I mean, the three teams we, we fielded weren't exactly up to the normal standard, but anyway, it is park cricket, so it's not that high standard it's a, anyway. It's a seller's market for fill-ins, Stewie. Yeah. You know, mate, a couple of cricketers that haven't played for a few seasons. Well, I heard I a rumour you were thinking that, of heading back. Yeah, no, nah, fake news. <laughs> yeah, fake there's a lot news. of that going around. No one would have me, mate. I shopped around. <laughs> <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give me a cap. What are you going to uh, do? We got a fan moment of the week for us, Hamish. Yeah, this one comes on behalf of all our baseball lovers. Um, specific one, Jeremy out there loves his loves his baseball. So this one's for him. Um, and that was 17-year-old Genevieve Beacom, who made history this week as the first female pitcher for an Australian professional men's baseball team. The first player full, the first female player full stop. She debuted for the Melbourne Aces in the Melbourne Challenge Series. Uh, she signed for the Aces early this month as a development player and was subbed into Saturday's match against the Adelaide Giants for the Giants' final innings. She recorded no hits and no runs, and despite losing the match, she started with that, that perfect score sheet. And she was quoted after the game saying, if anyone tries to push you to do something you don't want to do or push you to softball or play sport that you shouldn't be playing, just don't listen, uh, which is a really powerful quote. And good on her, like 17 years old, playing the men's professional baseball team as a pitcher, um, which is many people would say the hardest position to play or at least to learn on a baseball team. That's just an incredible achievement. She's already represented both Victoria and Australia at underage levels. And gee, she could really go on to, to be anything, but it's just awesome to see her setting an example. Uh, we don't have the same setup for, for female baseball around Australia as we do with the men's. It's hard for them. Um, it's a it's a semi-professional game, but more like an, an amateur sport where they don't get a whole lot of funding to, to play their sport. So fantastic to see. Um, and one you that kind that, of slipped um, under the radar. Sorry to interrupt that. No, no, I, it's, an, it's an awesome, awesome moment. Um, not just for baseball fans, but also for, for all sports fans, all fans of women's sport, which all sports fans should be. Uh, one thing I just wanted to mention was with the starting of the AFLW and this great news out of the baseball is that it's really easy to support women's sport um, by just signing up to memberships and getting down to support your local teams. A lot of um, professional sports teams have uh, joint memberships. So if you sign up for, you know, Carlton women, Carlton men's team, there's an option to sign up for the women's or, you know, a joint club membership. Um, so make sure that you, you sign up for the joint memberships and, um, and really get around the girls because it's an exciting time for women's sport in Australia, especially. Sure is. I remember, I remember the, the day I was sold on, on women's sport was when I was playing, I joined a footy team um, when I started high school and, um, and in my team was Izzy Huntington. Who I was, was going to say. Would go in the, who would go number one in, in the draft the, the year we all graduated. Um and first game, and I was sort of asking around, like, oh, a girl in the team, like, uh, the opposition allowed to tackle her, just, like, general, completely naive things. And, and everyone in the team was like, mate, just you watch. You'll understand. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. We'll see Sad how this first clearance. ACL. First clearance, yeah, it was terrible. Sorry. First you, clearance, you go, you go. tap down, she's ruck rover, just, like, hits it at speed, two bounces out of the centre, like, bottom pelly, kicks it on the <laughs> run from 45, goes through post out. I'm like... I don't think the issue is whether she's allowed to be tackled. It's whether she will be tackled at all. And she had about 35 touches and four goals that day. Um, yeah, women's sport is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, in many respects, it's more of a team um, aspect. I don't want to throw a general blanket statement over all yeah. women's sport, but when I watch women's soccer, women's cricket, 
uh, or women's basketball, they don't have the egotistical nature of the men's. It's about passing. They realize that you can move the ball, particularly in soccer. You can move the ball a lot quicker by passing than by dribbling. And um, that's why I enjoy watching it so much personally. All right. Um, just looking for the time. Can't find my watch. Uh, Hugo, Ben, does anyone have it? Absolutely, I do. It is time for Cyprus and the world's favourite segment, Hit or Miss. Shout out to our one listener in Cyprus. Um, Respect. Ben, get us started. Yeah, absolutely. I can. After copying a fair bit of feedback from my um my hit or miss last week, I've, I've decided to go small target here. Um, hopefully one that won't be so controversial. I'm saying that Paddy Mills should win Australian of the Year. Hit or miss. Hamish. Well, that wasn't on the run sheets now. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we already talked about we talked about Kawaja. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> No, no, it's a great life. hit or miss. Um yeah, hit. I uh am always a little bit cautious of giving sports people awards, um, especially if it's on the basis of their sporting achievements. But Paddy Mills' achievements go far beyond sport as did Adam Goods' achievements, the last sporting person to to win the award. And, yeah, when I think of hope and future for Australia and for reconciliation and just what I want the world to think when they think about Australia or what it means to be Australian, I think of of Paddy Mills. Um, So, yeah, absolutely good for me. Um, I think it's just a miss for me. Um, I love Paddy Mills just as much, if not more, than the next bloke. Um, definitely followed the boomers more than I did any other sport in the Olympics. But I just think with COVID and everything, it would be hard to go past some of the doctors, nurses, and um, workers. And yeah, exactly. All those frontline workers um, who have worked so hard in Australia, vaccination staff, um, when that's been such a dominant thing in the, in the past few years. Um, but his work off the off the court has been amazing. Um, so yeah, definitely deserves credit, but maybe not Australian of the year. Mm, good point. I agree with both of you. I actually reckon that's a, a really spot on sentiment, Hamish. That if you want, if Paddy Mills embodies everything you want people to think of of Australia and Australians. Um, it's a it's a good sales pitch for his Australian of the Year campaign, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, but also pretty hard to argue with with Hugo's argument. So yeah. <laughs> but we're not making that call. <laughs> yeah, very glad. Uh, all right, it is my turn. We're going back to the Djokovic debacle. Um, it's a statement and it's hit or miss. If Roger Federer had refused to release his vaccination status and arrived in Australia only to be denied entry in the same way Djokovic was, he would have received the same backlash, hit or miss. So I'm going with miss just because it wouldn't have been the same backlash. There would have been a lot of backlash. It just would have been of a type, an entirely different type. It would have been sort of shock and horror and <laughs> a feeling of betrayal. <laughs> like at no point, like Ivan's like, oh no, I thought Djokovic was this sort of bastion of, of, of moral guidance. And it turns out that he's actually just a fool. Like I think Roger <laughs> Federer is as 
pretty close to like perfection in a human being. And I would, I would feel so personally affronted if it came out that he was an, an anti-vaxxer. So it's not a hypothetical. I even, I enjoy entertaining. Um, there would be a lot of backlash, but it would be of a, a completely different sort. I think. Um, I think it is a miss as well. Very similar answer to Ben. Um, obviously you'll still have your anti-vaxxers coming out to support Federer. And then I think you'd have a lot more people being um, more compassionate towards Federer's claims than with Djokovic. It seems a bit like, oh, did that really happen? You know, did you really get COVID? Did you really isolate? Why were you out at this time? Um, whereas with Federer, you'd, <laughs> yeah, you'd be shocked. But that's a good one. Hamish? Oh, no, I, I agree with both of you. I think, um, yeah, it was basically Ben's point. It would just be, um, <laughs> yeah, shock. But I think it does say something that it would be different because just because we semi are not surprised about it from Djokovic, that in itself shouldn't come into mean anything when we're weighing up any decisions. Um, but, yeah, the... Uh, the media in particular, in particular would have treated this differently if it was Roger Federer, I think. Um, Hugo, hit us. Yeah, so this one actually comes from a fan of the show, Stephen contributing once again. Um, and his is a statement that the AFL isn't allowing the AFL to live up to its full potential by scheduling it during peak cricket season. He also wondered how they're ever going to develop necessary crowds, junior interest and support for the game if most of the nation's attention is focused on cricket. His suggestion is for women's AFL to occupy the midweek slots that the AFL is looking into Wednesdays, Thursdays and Mondays. That way you could have full attention of those who want more footy during the regular season without compromising the development of women's AFL by making it compete with more popular sports. Bit of a long one, but... Hit or miss over the general statement, boys. Uh, it's a hit for me. I actually think the the suggestion about midweek games is a really good one. The one thing I'll say about how it is scheduled currently, just to play devil's advocate, it does build really neatly into the the men's season. Um, and as interest in football in general grows, interest in the, the AFLW season grows going into finals. Um, I do think at this time of the year with everything that goes on with cricket and the Australian Open, it's a lot to compete with, especially for a, a pretty green competition like the AFLW. Um, but yeah, that the midweek option is, is certainly worth looking into, I reckon. Um, I'm not playing devil's advocate. I actually do think it's just a miss genuinely. My thing is it just starts a couple of weeks too early. So Obviously, we've got an Ashes on at the moment and we've got the Big Bash on um, and it's just Yay, started. So It's just, I mean, the problem with the Big Bash is they're both on seven, right? So they yeah. can't get both of them on the TV, uh, which is the key way people are going to interact. So for me, it's a pretty simple solution. Every year we have this month between the start of the cricket season and the end of the footy season where everyone's like, horse racing, Sheffield Shield, um, <laughs> give me something. And it's a month that they could just feel by shifting the AFL season back a month and start the women's a month later. And it will start then later in summer um, after the cricket, more people's interest in cricket is, is tapering off. And I think in the same way that the women's 
cricket season typically kind of bookends the males cricket season. Um, it works really well for the interest in the women's game at the start. But imagine if in a couple of weeks time we had the women's ashes starting and also we had the AFLW starting. I think it's important to have it standing alone. If it was during the men's season, it's just not going to get the coverage. It's going to get washed away and people won't be going to the games because although we always say we want more footy, there's already so much of it and people are going to be watching AFL 360 on a Wednesday night rather than um, the women's game and, and they just won't get the coverage they deserve. So I think it does need a standalone and I think the solution would just be to do it slightly later. I think that's, that's a perfect solution is the one you said, Hamish. And on your mention of the women's ashes, I can't wait. That particularly the test match. Um, very excited for that. Come to Monica. I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> Great place to watch cricket. I'll briefly run through uh, on this day or on this week segment. Um, this week, we go back to 1811. I think it's the oldest one yet. Um, on January 9th, the first known women's golf tournament was held at Musselburgh Golf Club in Scotland amongst the town's fishwives. Um, so just a nice little story to show how women in golf has been you know, progressing for over 200 years. And we've already talked about the, the coverage of, of golf in Australia and uh, it's even worse for the women's game. Um, so, yeah, just a little niche one for you there. I still find it fascinating um, that golf is, although the coverage obviously of women's golf isn't great, neither is it of men's golf. Um, golf's like one of the most considered to be one of the most conservative sports out there in terms of traditions and all these kinds of things. And yet it's one of the only sports in the world that pays the female competitions as much as it does the male competitions in terms of prize money. Um, so I actually think obviously this is a great anniversary that you've picked up Hugo. And ever since that famous round at muscle, the golf club, <laughs> things have been pro progressing in the women's game. Um, but that actually might be a sign that, you know, it's taken 210 years, but they actually do get, like the same amount of pay as the men's now. They don't get as much coverage, but it's a genuine like profession for female golfers out there. And it's something that I know quite a few females who just love it and they live for it. So um, yeah, it's, I just, it's a weird thing in my head that it, for such a conservative sport, it's managed to get to this point. So why haven't more progressive sports got there already? Ben, what are your thoughts? Um, I haven't, actually watch the highlights of this <laughs> particular round of golf. Um, but I agree with what you've both said. I, I'm still trying to get my head around how you know this, you know, <laughs> to be honest. He was there. That, actually, that's just it, been pulled out of the back of your mind. It, it is interesting that the women in golf have been traced back to the 1500s. So it took 300 years for them to get a comp going. So there you so go. They were just Another. like extremely social for three centuries until they just, <laughs> someone's like, all right, let's settle this. <laughs> okay. Three no, centuries. It was, it was a good one. I don't have that much to add, but that's all. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Let's get into the, the fixtures. We'll start off with the cricket. Um, so right now we've got the South Africa India test. Uh, it's a day one, just in the second session. As of now, at, at almost 11 o'clock on the 11th of December, India are two for 95, batting it's first. January. 
Sorry, just keep that in. Yeah. As of now, at almost 11 o'clock on the 11th of January, uh, India are three for 95, with Pujara just being dismissed in that last minute um, for 43. That leaves Kohli and Rahane at the crease together. Um, We're hoping for a, a really close game. Um, and it looks like um, South Africa got a crucial breakthrough there and India will look to build a total. In other sport um, cricket fixtures, we have, of course, the fifth test coming up at Hobart. First few days are sold out. Huge crowds expected. There is talk of weather, um, rain um, predicted, but here's hoping that we get a, a really good Hobart test and more cricket in Tasmania in the future. Uh, we've got a full week of, of Big Bash as well. Won't run you through the full schedule there. However, there is the Stars do end up playing about seven games in nine days or something like that. So if you're a Stars fan, follow the Big Bash and enjoy your cricket. Um, looking over to the US, as we teased earlier, we have the NFL uh, playoffs coming up. We have the Super Wild Card Weekend with six matches to take place. As conference winners, the Titans and Packers have earned a week off. Uh, on Sunday, Australia time, the Raiders face the Bengals. Patriots play the Bills. Whilst on Monday, we have a triple header with the Eagles, Buccaneers, 49ers, Cowboys, and Steelers, Chiefs all playing together. Finally, the Cardinals face the Rams in a huge clash midday on Tuesday in the regular Monday night football slot. So some big playoff games there and um, likely to see a few upsets, I reckon. Hamish, how about you run us through the big week of soccer coming up? Uh, sure will, Hugo. Um, I sound about just as excited as you for those upcoming seven stars, big batch games. <laughs> I'll be tuning into them in the soccer world. Uh, there's two huge fixtures in the Premier League this weekend. Firstly, we have Manchester City versus Chelsea at 11.30pm on Saturday, followed up by Tottenham and Arsenal in the London Derby at 3.30am on Monday. They're both season-defining games. Manchester City trying to ward off Chelsea one final time as they try to wrap up the the Premier League title really early into January. And then we have both Tottenham and Arsenal vying for that top four position as well as just being a huge derby game as it always is. Beforehand, though, we actually have Chelsea and Tottenham playing in the second leg of their EFL Cup semi-final tie, and that's on Thursday morning at 6.45. And we have Arsenal and Liverpool playing their first leg on Friday. So both Arsenal and Tottenham will be tired coming off the back of those games. All right, Ben, bring us home. Yes, and in tennis, the Australian summer rolls on with the second Adelaide International and the Sydney Cup this week as players continue to gear up for the big one, the Australian Open commencing on February the 17th. In AFLW, round two kicks off on Friday night with the Tigers hosting the Demons, followed by Pies Saints, Cats v Dogs, Eagles, Suns, Crows v North, and the Dockers taking on the Giants. In the world of golf, the PGA Tour will stay in Hawaii, where the Wailai Country Club will play host to a star-studded field for the Sony Open. And in other golf news, Fox Sports has just announced this week its exclusive deal to broadcast the entire summer of Australian golf, kickstarting with the Australian PGA in a couple of weeks' time. So that should be a lot of fun. What are our tips and bold predictions for the features coming up, gentlemen? Hamish, I'll start with you. Well, in terms of tips, um, 
I'm just going to tip on the, the two key Premier League matches. Firstly, I think when it comes to Arsenal and Tottenham, I think Tottenham actually might have enough this weekend, um, despite Arsenal being above them. I think Tottenham might get there in a 2-1 victory. But in the big one, Chelsea and City, just the fact that Chelsea have to play this extra game two days beforehand, I think it's going to make it really hard for them. City in such good form. I honestly can see this being a proper romp and being kind of a 3-0 win for City and kind of wrapping up the title race. Hoping I'm wrong, though. Hoping it stays interesting for the rest of the season. But to my bold prediction... Look, I've been fascinated by this whole India-South Africa series, and I think India are just going to edge them, and they're going to record their first ever series win in South Africa. However, I'm going to add an extra onto this. I think Marco Janssen next summer in Australia is absolutely going to torment us, um, particularly our, our top order with that that left arm swing. He looks like a serious player. He can bowl really fast and also bat a bit, um, and he's so raw at the moment. So unless he gets some stressies, I think he's one to watch out for. Very good. Um, my tip is that Cameron Green is going to notch up his first test century in in Hobart. I liked what I saw in the second dig. I thought he rounded into some nice form with the bat. Um, and I think he's he's absolutely primed against an English bowling attack, which will be pretty tired come the fifth test. My bold prediction um, is not so much a prediction as a, as a talking point, but I'm really interested to see who's going to win man of the series for the ashes. There's no one that is really standing out heads and shoulders above the competition. It might even be um, one where the winner hasn't played all five test mess- matches. I'm thinking the likes of, of Cummins, um, even Boland has to be, um, and a name that you'd, you'd think about. Um, and for the batsman, no one's really dominated. I think Lubbershane's sco- leading with runs, but only the one ton. So that's, I've said everything except a bold prediction there, but see if you can get whatever you want out of it. Who would you, who would you take if you had to um, right now? So like I would say Lubbershane, but I also say he hasn't had a good series by his standards. It's like, it's, it's sort of bizarre. I, can't I don't think you can give it to Cummins. He's been the pick of the bowlers, but he missed a test. Um, Lubbershane's played all five, all five, and as well, all four so far, and has made runs consistently without making the big runs he probably would have been after. Um, I don't know. What about you? Boland now has more wickets than Cummins in the series, and he's played okay. two games. Yeah, one field game. Um, but you can't really give it to Bolt. Like he's gonna play. Yeah. No. No. I'm giving um, it to my. Pre-Ashes prediction, I think Nathan Lyons a sleeper. He's got the most wicket in the series so far. Hasn't dominated, but I think if he has a good game here, especially if he picks up a five for an either innings, he's going to end up winning the wickets by pretty comfortable amount and being one of those few players, like Ben said, to play all five tests. I reckon he's a chance. Hobart's turned from a New Zealand green top to an Indian tweaker, has it, Hamish? Well, has he typically <laughs> play a spinner down there? So that, that gives me cautious optimism. Um, and... The fact that they're all saying it's been flat as a tap yeah. in recent Shield games. Yeah. So, anyway, maybe Labashane will turn up and, and get it. Um, awesome. I have a non-cricket bowl prediction. Who would have thought it? Um, going to the NFL with the playoffs starting. Uh, Green Bay are favourites, so it would have been easy to pick Aaron Rodgers. However, I've gone with Brady to win his eighth championship and lead Tampa back-to-back. Um, t- uh, media don't really doubt Tom Brady anymore, but it just seems like a lot of uh, 
talk is about other teams, whereas Brady's continuing to break record and break records in the regular season, still likely to win MVP, has had one of his best seasons, and he always improves in the playoffs and comes Super Bowl time. So who knows, but there's a, a bold prediction for you in the world of American sports. Hugo, I've got a one that we um won't discuss today, but is he is he actually like amazing? I've never watched a game of NFL, so I wouldn't know. But like all I hear is like Brady, so old, so amazing, so many championships, just like best player ever. Like, is he when you watch a game of NFL, would I notice that he is so much better than the rest? Uh it depends who who he plays against, because there's a lot more exciting quarterbacks and <clears throat> arguably more talented quarterbacks right now but he is going to win the most valuable player. And um, I mean, yeah, longevity and he, he is amazing and genuinely game-changing, especially in these playoffs and Super Bowl. So if you're ever going to watch Tom Brady, watch him in this playoffs and hopefully, well, not hopefully necessarily, I'm a Patriots fan after all, but hopefully in the play, in the Super Bowl because he just comes alive. <clears throat> and is he, is it his throwing or like his smarts that separates him? Both. Just it's the combination of his throwing under extreme pressure and his his ability. They talk about these pressure situations, you know, these two-minute scenarios that teams drill in, and there's just no one better than him getting a score in the last two minutes of a game. Um, Aaron Rodgers can challenge him at times, but Tom Brady is just, you know, unequivocally the GOAT in, in NFL. Cool. No equivocation about it. Very good. On that <laughs> note, that's um, just about all the time we have this week. Thanks to all the listeners for joining us right up until the end as we've talked our way through a massive week in sport. Be sure to join us next week as we wrap up our Ashes coverage, preview the Australian Open, bring you all the news, results, tips and predictions you should possibly hope to hear and, of course, deliver another memorable instalment of Australia's favourite podcasting segment, Hit or Miss. From Hugo Hamish and myself, though, it is goodbye for now.